0: Section 87 of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jordan P. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. By Lucy Maud Montgomery. Hill of the Winds, Part 2, Chapter 2. It was morning, and Romney was on his way to the sand shore for a swim, with his bathing suit rolled up under his arm, a gaily striped bath towel hung over his shoulder, and his coppery head bared to the sun. He was in excellent spirits, although his three o'clock musings had been of an unsatisfactory character. At three o'clock it had seemed preposterous to dream of marrying an edgelow heiress and senile to fall in love with her. He had laughed at himself, and now he felt very wise and prudent. She was his ideal, but between them her wealth and his poverty stood like grim, unconquerable ogres. The feud counted for nothing in his eyes, but one couldn't marry on an income that served only, in its most flexible moments, to keep life in one. There was nothing like looking facts squarely in the face and accepting their logic. He couldn't afford to fall in love with Dorcas Edgelow, but her name must be Sylvia, and therefore he would not do it. She must remain for him only an exquisite might have been. She could only be his dream girl. Meanwhile, life was good. It was worth while having been ill, to realize the tang and savor of returning health again on a morning like this when a sea wind was blowing up over the long green fields. "'There's nothing on earth like a sea wind,' said Romney, filling his lungs with it, snuffing rapturously at it. "'What a tang! What a zip!' What a message from vast, interminable spaces of freedom! What a magic of adventure! I feel as if I had exchanged my shop-worn soul for a fresh one, fire new from the workshop of the gods. Who is Sylvia? What is she? Compared to this incomparable morning, wind and sea. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Sylvia shan't rock my canoe. He whistled gaily and strode on. Everything was good. He felt like a boy again. The rice lilies were as thick as ever in the shore fields, and the margin of the pond as pink with water witches. Beyond, in the dunes, was a wild, sweet loveliness of salt-withered grasses and piping breezes. Far out, the sea was dotted with sails that were silver in the magic of the morning sunlight. He would have a glorious dip, a glorious wallow on sun-warm golden sands. Then, after a glamorous walk home, one of Aunt Elizabeth's delightful dinners— then an afternoon of hammock dreams in the garden he would not even look across the hedge for him Edgelow estates and heiresses had ceased to exist he would not look at speak to nor think of sylvia again with this he looked at her he had reached the brink of the deep little run by which the pond waters ran through a gap in the dunes to the sea on the other side of it barely five yards away Sylvia was standing, her arms full of water witches, looking in dire perplexity at the water. Then she looked at him. For a moment or two, or an aeon or two, according to whatever measurement of time you prefer, they stood so and looked at each other. Romney, who had just sworn never to look at Sylvia again, fairly devoured her with his eyes. She wore green again, and she looked like a long, slender, green flag lily with the exquisite blossom of her face atop of it. Had there ever been such a pretty woman in the world before? Had any woman ever had such an exquisite line of neck and chin? What were all the renowned, unhappy Edgelow beauties compared to her? They were dead and gone, broken-hearted, but she was here in her exquisite flesh and blood, looking as if no sorrow ever had, or ever could have, touched her. "'Good morning,' said Romney, who wanted to say, "'Hail, goddess!' Miss Edgelow looked at him and smiled. Her smile was very faint and mysterious, like a half-opened rosebud. You felt that the full flower could not be quite so wonderful. The plank is gone, she said plaintively. It was here when I crossed an hour ago. Romney pointed to some men who were making marsh hay up along the pond. Likely they have taken it. And how am I to get across, she asked. It's so deep and cold. I can't wait it. "'No reason why you should,' said Romney. "'I was sent here by the powers that govern for this moment. "'It was predestinated in the councils of eternity "'that I should be here at this precise moment to carry you across. "'Then I hope it is likewise predestinated that you won't drop me. "'The water looks fearfully cold and black, "'and I'm sure there are horrible slimy things at the bottom.' Romney coolly stepped into the run, "'though he felt slightly dubious as to what bottom he might find.' Sand and mud are a treacherous combination, and to wade in icy cold water to your knees is an experiment for a man not too long over pneumonia. But what cared Romney? Luckily the bottom of the run, though oozy and squidgy, was no worse, and he got across without trouble. He was very near to her now. Seen close, she was not quite so beautiful, but infinitely more charming. Her creamy skin was powdered with delicious little golden freckles. They made her less a goddess and more a woman." You must let me carry you over, said Romney. I won't drop you. I won't wet you. But, he added internally, I won't swear that I shan't kiss you before I set you down. I'm afraid it will be too much for you, she said. You've been ill, haven't you? And you're dripping wet with that cold water. She must have been asking about him to know that he'd been ill. James Edgelow would never have volunteered the information. Romney glowed from head to foot. I'm all right. As for being wet, I came down to get wet but not in your clothes. That, she said practically, is what makes it dangerous. Why didn't you take off your shoes and socks and roll up your trousers? That would have kept you waiting. "'You are a very imprudent young man,' she said, then added, as if by way of afterthought. "'I wouldn't have minded being kept waiting.' "'What did she mean?' Romney imagined several things she might mean. He stood staring at her. What a delicious mouth she had. Her hair was like midnight under her wide green hat.' but her nose was slightly irregular. Well, let us say crooked. How nice! And her voice was a sweet, throaty, summery drawl. What a voice for love making! Romney stood there and imagined her making love in it. "'Did I frighten you last night by my crazy hoot?' he asked. "'Oh, no. I've been told that the Coopers are eccentric.' "'You've been brought up on the feud, I suppose,' said Romney sulkily. "'Well, are you going to let a vile, contemptible Cooper carry you over the run?' "'Yes, but I won't speak to him while he's doing it,' said Miss Edgelow. She smiled again. It made Romney want to seize her in his arms and press kisses on the smile until he had found the heart of its mystery. This Edgelow girl had the smile of Mona Lisa, the everlasting lure and provocation that drives men mad and writes scarlet pages in dim historical records. He picked her up and waded through the run with her. He did not hurry. Every time he took a step, he felt carefully about to make sure of his foothold.' he did not go straight across but anglewise with no explanation offered finally however he had to make land then he set her down reluctantly without kissing her thank you she said i hope you won't take cold for this there are no such things as colds in the seventh heaven said romney he felt that it was an incredibly stupid thing to say why couldn't he think of something clever he could think of clever things easily when there was nobody to say them to his magazine stories were noted for their sparkling dialogue, yet now he could only be clumsy. His fiction heroes talked superbly to heroines of all sorts. They never made asses of themselves. Miss Edgelow ignored his feeble attempt properly. "'You must go and take your salt water dip directly,' she commanded, "'and dry your clothes in the sun before you put them on. Be very particular about that.' "'I am going to stand here,' said Romney, folding his arms, "'and watch you out of sight, and to-night,' "'What about to-night? Can I come over into the Edgelow garden and talk to you?' Miss Edgelow smiled. "'The dead Edgelows would turn over in their graves.' "'Excellent exercise for them,' commented Romney. "'Be honest. I don't believe you care a hoot for the dead Edgelows and their feuds any more than I do.' "'No, I don't,' she said candidly. "'But one living Edgelow is worse than all the dead ones. "'Last night my uncle commanded me never to speak to you, look at you, "'nor in any way become cognizant of your existence.' He was emphatic, which means that he didn't scruple to enforce his decree with some fine old Edgelow oaths. Do you intend to obey him? A man, said Miss Edgelow reflectively, is master in his own domain. At least I cannot invite you into his garden. Neither, of course, can I go into yours. The whispering lane is debatable ground, said Romney. So I have heard, said Miss Edgelow. Before she turned away, she looked at him once from under her broad hat, Something in the look made Romney suddenly recall cousin Clorinda's pronouncement. Either she liked it, or she is a born flirt. Was she a flirt? That look? Was it an invitation, lure, provocation? It held more than mere friendliness, Romney knew. There was even a hint of defiance in it, though more, it seemed, of feuds and prohibitions than of him. He had a feeling that Sylvia—hang it, her name couldn't be Dorcas— might come to walk in the whispering lane— as much to show old James Edgelow as for any other reason. "'I will be prudent,' said Romney to himself as she went away. "'I shall remember the fatal hour of three o'clock. "'I shall not make myself miserable howling for the moon, "'nor humiliate myself to furnish a summer holiday for a bored beauty. "'Only prudence is such a shoddy sort of virtue by times. "'One always feels ashamed of it. "'If I had been prudent, I would not have waded through this icy run-water.'" and so would never have held that delicious armful for thirty seconds. I would never have had that exquisite white hand resting on, clinging to, my shoulder. There was no engagement ring on it, by the way. Nevertheless, there are certain things I must remember henceforth. Romney held up his left hand and checked them off on his fingers. First, she is an Edgelow, therefore born to hate me. Second, she is an heiress, therefore taboo. Third, I am poor as a rat, and likely to remain so, therefore out of the running. Fourth, I think she is a bit of a coquette, therefore to be shunned. And fifth—Romney paused for a moment—and fifth, she is the sweetest, most adorable, most desirable thing that ever looked allurement at a man out of a pair of—of—of heavens! I've forgotten, after all, to find out what color her eyes were. Therefore, I am a besotted fool.' He caught up his impedimenta and hurried over the dunes to the beach. He would certainly be prudent henceforth. He would devote himself to Cousin Clorinda's schoolteacher by way of double prudence. He plunged into the surf, thinking, "'Her lashes are so long, it's no wonder I couldn't rightly see her eyes, "'and her eyebrows are straight and dark. I'm sure of that, anyhow.'" The lady referred to was not the schoolteacher. At dinner that day, sitting in the cool, dim dining room of the hill, looking out on the golden valley, Romney was not above trying to pump Aunt Elizabeth about her new neighbor, but he got nothing for his pains. Aunt Elizabeth knew nothing about her, and plainly did not want to know. She contrived to give Romney the impression that edgelows did not really exist. They might imagine they did, but they were mere emanations of the evil one, to be resolutely disbelieved in by any one of good principles and proper breeding. You did not speak of the devil in good society neither did you speak of the edgelows this imagined girl might be an imagined dorcas edgelow or she might not aunt elizabeth relegated the whole edgelow clan connection and cash to limbo with one wave of her thin unbeautiful Kuperian hand edgelows indeed thus checkmated romney swore inwardly that he would never ask anyone about miss edgelow again and a quarter of an hour later was asking samuel about her he simply couldn't keep from talking to somebody about her Samuel lived in a little house in a hollow on the side of Hill of the Winds. He was never called Sam; it simply could not be done. He was a handsome urchin of ten with an elfin beauty of face, which Aunt Elizabeth considered clearly diabolic: jet black eyes, limpid with mischief, laughter, lawless roguery; brown curls bare to the sunlight; cheeks rose red beneath golden tan; a shirt, half a pair of suspenders. What was left of a pair of pants originally fashioned for a much older boy, that was Samuel. He generally had a snake, dead or living, concealed about him, and he had never heard of the Ten Commandments. By nature he was honest, but he never spoiled a good story by sticking too closely to the truth, and he was as thorough a young pagan as ever ran wild on the heath. Romney loved him. Do you, said Romney shamelessly, happen to know who the enchanted princess is who walks occasionally in yonder fair pleasance beyond the cedar hedge? Meaning old Jim's garden? asked Samuel, transferring a vicious-looking little brown snake from his pants pocket to his shirt pocket. Is that what you mean? Yes. Don't know nothing of her. Watched her through the hedge last night. She'd be good looking if it weren't for her freckles. Gee, but they're thick. Romney glared. Samuel winked at him impudently and, on second thought, restored the snake to the pants pocket. "'How can you touch those horrible things?' said Romney, shuddering. He hated snakes. "'This snake's dead,' said Samuel contemptuously. "'Then you have no information to give me concerning our mysterious stranger?' "'Nope. I can find out all about her, though, if you're so set on it.' "'What?' asked Samuel seriously. "'What makes you like her so well?' "'Romney was flabbergasted.' He thought he had been very cool and impersonal and detached in his questions, and here was this imp. "'Samuel, my boy, you have a very vile habit of jumping at conclusions. Simply because I betray an entirely natural curiosity regarding a lady who is my next-door neighbor, why do you absurdly suppose that I have a deep personal interest in her?' "'Cause you don't talk English when you ask questions about her,' rejoined Samuel, fishing up another snake, a very live one this time. All them big words mean you're bashful talkin' about her. Has she been here long? asked Romney, reverting to English. Never saw her round for yesterday, Samuel explored a third pocket with a disappointed expression. There, he must have slipped through that hole, just my darned luck. He was the finest snake of the bunch. Say, don't worry, I'll know all there's to be known about her for tomorrow night, but you oughtn't to be hankering after her, one of that gang over there. The Cooperist of all Coopers could not have expressed more contempt for that gang than Samuel, who had never heard of them a month previously. Samuel had an instinctive recognition of a foe to all boys in old Jim, and had adopted the feud as a convenient excuse for hostility. As for Romney, he was by now far from the three o'clock mood, and he wanted so badly to talk of his dream lady that he must needs talk of her to Samuel, no fitter confidant offering. "'I want you to find out that her name isn't Dorcas.' "'But it is,' said Samuel. "'I heard old Jim shouting after her this morning when she went to the shore. "'Dorcas, you remember my dinner hour is twelve. "'Well,' thought Romney, turning away in disgust, "'I can think of her as Sylvia anyhow. "'And that is all that matters, "'since she is an edgelow and an heiress and a coquette. "'Dorcas is not for me, but Sylvia has always been mine.' "'Samuel,' he added aloud, "'do you wish you were rich?' "'Yep!' What is the first thing you would do if you were rich? Buy Joe Perkins's trotter, said Samuel unhesitatingly. And I, Samuel, if I were rich, would marry the young lady we've been speaking of. Would she have you? asked Samuel. Chapter 3 Miss Edgelow was walking at sunset in the Whispering Lane. This lane ran through the beech wood at the back of the Cooper and Edgelow estates. It had been a bone of contention for generations. Both families claimed it, and both used it determinedly to prove their claim. For the past twenty years no particular fuss had been made over it. Miss Elizabeth walked through it on principle twice a year when she knew James Edgelow would see her, and James Edgelow always went to church that way when he did go, though it was the longest way around. Samuel joined Miss Edgelow as she loitered along under the great gray-bowed beeches perhaps miss edgelow had been expecting someone else perhaps not she did not betray any disappointment and she smiled at samuel in a chummy fashion and proceeded to get acquainted with him miss edgelow had so it seemed a way with boys samuel liked her but kept his head after all he was the retainer of a clan that was at feud with hers when he found out that she was not afraid of snakes he respected her also but for all that he had made up his mind that he was not going to have any courting between her and Romney. Samuel wanted Romney wholly for himself. He loved him and he wanted him for chum and playfellow. This would, Samuel knew with a deadly instinctive certainty, be all spoiled if he began running after a skirt. Men were no good when they began running after skirts. Besides, this particular skirt was an edgelow, and you couldn't trust an edgelow. She would likely as not make a fool of Romney. Sarah Dean, down at Clifton, had made a fool of Homer Gibson, and Homer had hanged himself. Samuel was not going to have any hangings at Hill of the Winds. This Edgelow girl must have her claws clipped in time. Samuel had been thinking over the matter all day, and knew just what he was going to do. Meanwhile, he sat on the log and appeared so simple and charming and naive that Miss Edgelow thought him a delightful child. "'What is your name?' asked Samuel. "'Dorcas Edgelow.' I told him that. He wouldn't hardly believe it. Told who? Oh, Romney, he was quizzing me about you. Oh, indeed, and why wouldn't he believe my name was Dorcas? Dunno, he's full of queer notions. He says, went on Samuel shamelessly, that if he was rich he'd marry you. Miss Edgelow crimsoned. She looked very angry for a moment, but Samuel, intent on shifting a snake to a more comfortable quarters, did not notice this. But he's poor. Always was and always will be, so he says. He's a writer man, you know. He likes to spoon about with girls and then put em in his stories. Oh, so that is what he does, said Miss Edgelow, still looking a little dangerous. Did he tell you so? Yep. He wants to get acquainted with you so he can put you in a book. Honest. That's his idea. Would you like to be put in a book? Miss Edgelow bit her lip. Did he tell you this, too? Yes, assented Samuel unblushingly thought I ought to warn you, and he told me he always tells a girl just what he thinks she'd like to hear. Don't let him fool you. Oh, I won't, Miss Edgelow looked as if there was not the slightest danger of it. He thinks you ain't bad looking, of course, supplemented Samuel, only he doesn't like your freckles. Say, do you know what will cure mange in a bulldog, a half-bulldog? Just at this moment Romney came along the lane on his way to have supper with cousin Clorinda, He was dressed in white flannels and was bareheaded. His eyes were luminous and his thin, delicately cut face was dreamy and remote. He did not see Miss Edgelow until he was quite opposite to her, did not see her because he was thinking of her. Then he halted in confusion and bowed rather stiffly. Miss Edgelow stood up. He saw at once that she wore a dark red hat, very wonderful and droopy and becoming, and the palest of pale pink dresses she turned away but as she turned she flung him a brief mysterious smile a surprisingly nice smile considering the expression that it had replaced romney wanted to follow her but dared not he went on feeling exceedingly and foolishly happy he was quite as well aware of the foolishness of it as of the exceedingness miss edgelow walked away also forgetting samuel who however was satisfied feeling that he had done a good bit of work miss edgelow communed with herself as she went back home "'So that is what he does—studies girls for types and puts them in his stories. "'Mr. Cooper, you need a lesson. "'I believe Uncle Jim was right when he said that all Cooper men believed "'that every girl who looked at them fell in love with them. "'So you would marry me if you were rich. "'Condescending, insufferable young man. "'Wait till I'm through with you. "'And you don't like my freckles.' "'Suddenly Miss Edgelow stopped and laughed. "'Why should I blame you for that? I don't like them myself.' what do you find in this forsaken hole that is so amusing asked old jim edgelow coming around a corner of the cedar walk uncle jim said miss edgelow if you were a young man trying to make love to a charming young woman i am charming am i not would you object to her freckles who's been making love to you demanded old jim fiercely nobody that's the trouble nobody has made any love to me "'I flung myself quite boldly in Romney Cooper's way to-night, "'and he passed me by. "'He objects, so I understand, to my freckles. "'Uncle, do you suppose I could make him fall madly in love with me "'in spite of my freckles, "'and then spurn him in true, dramatic, edgelow fashion? "'Do you suppose it would make any difference "'if he knew I don't have freckles in winter?' "'I think you're quite mad,' said old Jim. "'No, don't smile at me like that. "'Let me tell you, miss, that you trade too much on that smile.' "'It may work with silly young asses, but it won't work with me. "'I won't have you associating with this Cooper imbecile, do you hear me? "'Am I to be defied at my age by a chit of a girl?' "'He says he won't marry me,' said Miss Edgelow plaintively. "'Good Lord, girl, have you asked him to marry you?' "'Not yet,' said Miss Edgelow. "'I'm afraid it wouldn't be any use. "'He doesn't like my freckles, as I've said.' "'Old Jim snorted and stamped off, too angry to speak. "'Besides, he suspected that this girl was making fun of him.' If there's one thing that I like more than another, Miss Edgelow remarked to the weeping beach, it's tormenting the men. Romney went down the lane and across the windy fields and along the shore. The sea was ruffled into a living crimson under the sunset. The fishing boats were coming in. One incredibly white little star was just visible where the pale pink of the upper sky shaded off into paler green. Down low in the southwest there was a new moon he saw it over his right shoulder and wondered if sylvia saw it too she was not out of his thoughts for a minute during his whole walk but he thought this was because he allowed it never that it was because he could not help it cousin clorinda's house was so near the sea that the sound of waves always filled its rooms a gray old house fronting the sunset with leagues of satiny rippled sea before it purple headlands and distant fairy-like misty coasts what a you old mark wallace picked out when he built his homestead said romney admiringly what a thing to have the sea at your very doorstep like this how delightful it would be to live in this old remote place with sylvia and walk along that shore with her in the moonlight Hi ho if it were only possible if what were only possible queried cousin clorinda billowing down the walk in blue muslin and a cherry-hued scarf romney told her and why isn't it possible he stared at her This incredible woman, scarcely twenty-four hours ago, had warned him against having anything to do with Miss Edgelow, and had quoted feuds to him, and now she didn't seem able to believe that the idea was absurd. "'Adorable and adored, cousin, why this right-about face? You amaze me.' "'Haven't you faced about yourself?' retorted Clorinda. "'Yesterday afternoon you were going to marry her out of hand. Now you are groaning that it isn't possible.' "'I told you three o'clock would bring wisdom.' Three o'clock in the morning is the wisest and most accursed hour of the clock. At three o'clock I saw clearly how impossible it all was. At three o'clock I saw that it was quite possible, averred Clorinda. Why not? She is, or will be, disgustingly rich. All the better. You can't live on love. Nor on my wife's money, either. Can't you make enough to live on? I've always made enough to live on myself, but I couldn't ask Sylvia to live in a garret with me. Any other reasons? She is a flirt, I think. No, I'll say a coquette. That sounds better, infinitely more alluring and gracious. A girl like her always flirts, till the right man comes. I don't suppose she'd look at me. She's half in love with you already. And finally, her name isn't Sylvia. "'I won't discuss the matter if you're not going to be serious,' said Cousin Clorinda, really annoyed. She had lain awake most of the night constructing a gorgeous castle in the air for Romney, and it was aggravating to find that he refused to inhabit it, and refused so frivolously. "'Dear young thing, I am serious. Isn't it serious that that exquisite dream maiden should be named Dorcas? Serious? Why, it's a tragedy!' I have known several excellent women, said Cousin Clorinda severely, who were named Dorcas. I grant it, excellent women, beyond a doubt, but had those excellent women beauty, charm, distinction? Did they walk and speak like queens? Could they afford to comb their hair straight back from their faces? No, admitted Cousin Clorinda after a few moments of honest reflection. No, I don't suppose they were, did, could. "'You see,' said Romney triumphantly, "'of course she shouldn't be named Dorcas. "'But don't let's talk of her, cousin. "'I had an attack of temporary insanity "'at four by the clock yesterday. "'I am sane now. "'I am not in love with Miss Edgelow. "'I am not going to be in love with her. "'I think I will put her into my next magazine serial "'as a heroine. "'That is her proper environment. "'She is not meant for human nature's daily food. "'I couldn't ask her to darn my socks or fry my bacon. "'Lead me to your jam closet, Lady Fair,' Comfort me with raspberry vinegar, for I am sick of Aunt Elizabeth's Swedish ginger cordial. And stay me with an armchair. Your armchair's always fitted, my kinks. I've got supper ready for you in the dining room. I want you to eat it and tell me I'm a good cook. I'm dying for a compliment. I never get any now that I'm old. Where is your school teacher? In her room, correcting exercises. No, I am not going to call her down. If Dorcas Edgelow doesn't interest you, then— but she does. Haven't I told you that I'm going to write a story about her? Interest me. Why, I held her in my arms today for thirty blissful seconds. I won't say but what I held her a shade more tightly than was absolutely necessary. But then I had to be careful not to drop her, hadn't I? Fancy if I had dropped her in the run. Romney Cooper! They didn't put the hyphens in when they christened me. Strawberry Shortcake! Cousin of my heart, you're You shan't have one crumb of my strawberry shortcake until you've told me what you've been doing. Romney, you're overacting. You're dying to talk to me of Dorcas Edgelow, and yet you pretend you aren't. I came down here to talk about Samuel Rice, protested Romney with warmth. I'm really interested in Samuel. He's a gifted, engaging orphan. I want to do something for him, uplift him. For instance, couldn't we persuade him to go to Sunday school? You can help me, Cousin Clorinda. A good woman's influence i don't care a hoot about gifted orphans just now anyhow i'm dying to hear all about dorcas edgelow and you i've never known a romantic love affair not even my own would you sacrifice my happiness ruin my life break my heart to gratify your lust for romance demanded romney cousin clorinda i won't talk of her she is charming you've no idea how charming she is her freckles are enchanting an atmosphere of perfume seems to surround her and yet i swear she doesn't use perfume she has a nice little way of cuddling in your arms when you are carrying her about and her smile cousin clarinda i am a patient woman romney but if you don't tell me without any further preamble what you mean by carrying her about i'll smack your ears romney told her also he told her of the meeting in the whispering lane she was in the whispering lane yes by chance or god's grace and she wore she went to the whispering lane after you had suggested it as a sort of neutral ground and you didn't stop and talk to her "'You didn't—' "'I had an engagement with you, divinity.' "'You are a hopeless goose. "'You have thrown away a golden opportunity, "'and you have insulted her. "'Cousin Clorinda, you don't really mean "'that you think she went there to meet me.' "'Of course she did,' said Cousin Clorinda. "'When she smiled at you as you say she did, "'you should have followed her, "'even if you broke forty engagements with me, "'followed her to the very den of old Jim himself, if necessary. "'What about the feud?' "'A feud,' said Cousin Clorinda solemnly, "'is an unchristian thing. Besides, it would be a treat to see Mary Edgelow's face if Dorcas married you.' "'I give up trying to understand you,' said Romney. "'Anyhow, I've told you all there is to tell, so now may I have my shortcake?' It was starlight when Romney went home. A white, filmy mist was hanging over the river valley. He crossed the sea-fields and climbed Hill o' the Winds. The dew was cold, and the night was full of mystery and wonder and sheer magic. The two houses on the hill and their old gardens were veiled in it. It was an expectant night, a night when things intended to happen. Romney halted on the porch for a moment. There was a blot of white in the Edgelow garden, just across the hedge. As he looked at it, something was thrown over the hedge and struck him in the face, a soft, odorous something. He stooped and picked it up. It was a wide-blown rose, damp and exquisite with dew, a rose white enough to lie in her bosom or to star the soft, dark cloud of her hair. When Romney straightened up and looked across to the edgelow garden, the blot of white was gone. He kissed the rose. "'It's too dear a night to go to sleep,' he said. "'I will lay me down in the hammock and dream sweet, wonderful, foolish dreams that will be all the more wonderful and foolish and sweet, because they can never be anything but dreams.' I will dream of a world where there is no three o'clock in the morning. In her room, Miss Edgelow was looking scrutinizingly in the glass. They really don't show so much by lamplight, she said. End of section 87